Jules Boykoff is a political professor. He does a lot of research on activism, and he spent the last seven years exploring something really interesting, the connection between sports and political dissent. He just published a book about the Olympics that is not like any book about the Olympics that I've ever read. It's called Power Games, A Political History of the Olympics. Okay, so actually, to be honest, is the only book about the Olympics I've ever read because until talking to Jules, I didn't really care about the Olympics beyond, you know, watching the awesomeness that is ribbon dancing. Well, it's got continuous movement. It's lively. It's fast paced. Why should somebody who doesn't care about sports care about the Olympics? What is interesting about the Olympics to you? Well, beyond sport, I think it's important to consider the Olympics because they've turned into this monstrous juggernaut that sort of rolls around the globe. And when this juggernaut flies into the Olympic host stadium, it creates all sorts of social ripples that affect everyday people in the Olympic city. So if you care about capitalism, you should care about the Olympics. If you care about local politics and fairness and justice, you should care about the Olympics. If you're interested in activist groups, you should care about the Olympics. If you care about feminism, you should definitely care about the Olympics. If you care about workers' rights, you should think about the athletes as workers and you would think then about the Olympics. Okay, so years before he was someone who talked to students about Marxism, Jules was a Midwestern sports fan. Well, I grew up in Wisconsin where I was an avid sports fan and I followed the Olympics really carefully, especially winter sports. And in fact, I loved Eric Hyden, the speed skater. He went to the same high school that I went to. I had my little rainbow cap just like him. I'd go watch hockey. The Miracle on Ice from 1980 was a big part of my life and growing up. As a teenager, Jules fell in love with playing soccer. He got really good, too, and wound up snagging a spot on the U.S. Olympic soccer team. He didn't wind up playing in the Olympics, but he did get to travel around the world playing soccer matches. And on those matches against rival nations, something interesting happened. I guess I kind of had a little bit of a political awakening through that experience in the sense that I was playing in a tournament in France against Brazil, and it felt like every single person in that stadium was rooting against us. And at first I thought, oh, of course they're rooting against us because we're playing against Brazil, and Brazil's awesome, and I would cheer for them too. But then we went on and we played Czechoslovakia, Yugoslavia... didn't matter who our opponent was. So in my admittedly slow, naive 19-year-old mind at that time, a seed was planted that there was a whole lot more going on than just what was happening on the field, and that there were wider dynamics that informed why people would cheer for one team and maybe even against another team. During his downtime between games, Jules started doing a lot of reading about politics, economics, and history. I think I tried to start answering the questions that were raised in France about why would somebody cheer against the United States. So I guess that kind of leads us all down the path to today. Decades later, he's still trying to answer those questions. His book, Power Games, explores how the Olympics illuminates some harsh truths about capitalism. Jules sees the Olympics as an example of what he calls celebration capitalism. 
During the Olympics and leading up to it, the normal rules of politics are temporarily suspended in the name of a media-trumpeted, hyper-commercial spectacle, all safeguarded by beefed-up security forces responsible for preventing terrorism, corralling public dissent, and protecting the festivities. Celebration capitalism, he writes, is an upbeat shakedown, trickle-up economics with wrenching human costs. Damn! So just break that idea down for us a little bit more, because the story that's told about the Olympics is that hosting the Olympics is great for the host city. It's great for everybody involved. And it's really a celebration of human achievement and what humans can band together to do. So how do you see the Olympics as something that's not that, as something that's exploitative at its core? Mm -hmm. Well, for a long time, people who wanted to host the Olympics could roll out those vague promises about an uptick in jobs, the economic boat would be floated by the Olympics, and all these sort of things. But through time, independent economists and historians and people involved in politics have shown that that's just simply not true. The numbers don't bear that out. And if you want evidence of that, turn no further than Mitt Romney, Republican nominee for the presidency a few years back, who said when Boston was being presented with the idea of hosting the Olympics, he said, the Olympics are really not a money-making opportunity. And I think Mitt Romney saying that, this is the guy who rescued the 2002 Olympics in Salt Lake City. So he has an affinity for the games. He's a Republican. He's conservative. And when Mitt Romney says that, it really shows how far the way we've talked about the Olympics has changed. During the period of celebration capitalism leading up to the Olympics, it's a time when the public is so caught up in the spectacle and pride of an event that public officials and moneyed business people can get support for projects that otherwise would inspire a huge backlash. To understand exactly what that means, we have to unpack it a little bit. Okay, so you know Naomi Klein? She wrote this terrific book called The Shock Doctrine, The Rise of Disaster Capitalism. And in that book, Naomi Klein talks about how in moments of social peril, whether it be a terrorist attack or war, severe economic downturn, that neoliberal capitalists swoop in and say, we have the solutions to your troubles in this moment of exception, and we will give you neoliberal policies, which is to say, privatize everything with a pulse, get rid of all regulations, and push forth the mantra that we should let the market decide. Disaster capitalism. We saw this after 9-11 with the passage of the Patriot Act that stripped away a lot of our privacy rights and paved the way for imprisoning people without trial. We saw it after Hurricane Katrina when schools were privatized en masse in New Orleans. Let's just let Naomi Klein explain it. You know, I realize, I don't think it sounds conspiratorial. I think it sounds obvious, right? I'm, in fact, embarrassed to be pointing this out because it's such an obvious point. But it amazes me that people don't talk about it all the time that Dick Cheney was in the business of privatizing the U.S. military before he went into office, that Donald Rumsfeld was in the business of profiting from pandemics before he went into office. So these are all people who see profit directly from terrorism, natural disasters, and pandemics. Celebration capitalism is a similar moment, a state of exception, whereby politicians and their buddies, their well-connected elites around the host city, push through a series of policies. However, they're not 
privatizing. They're not neoliberal policies. They're just like you said, they're lopsided public-private partnerships where the public pays and the private entities around tend to scoop up the profits. And when I was up in Vancouver during the Olympic moment in 2010, I interviewed numerous activists who are trying to raise questions around these dynamics. And one of them, a guy called Am Joe Hall, said to me, the Olympics are a corporate franchise that you buy with public money. And I think he got the spirit of celebration capitalism exactly right. In Vancouver, Canada, during the 2010 Olympics, many people were upset about what happened to the Olympic Village. After the Games, the tall towers that once housed athletes were turned into luxury condos. That then, the city struggled to sell. The development had been promoted as a way to boost the city, but wound up with a reputation for being a ghost town. The Olympic Village was always sort of promoted as a potentially a, a jewel of Vancouver's Olympic experience. It would be a new kind of housing, it would be green housing, it would be a new neighborhood in what had been before more of an industrial area. All good intentions, but the sums didn't add up, leaving Vancouver's taxpayers with a legacy of debt. It is a huge ripoff for everybody who lives in Vancouver, except for a handful of favored people that uh, are friends of the people in City Hall and will be getting nice places to live. And so you can go from city to city to Olympic City, and you can see celebration capitalism at work. You can see that certain swath of political and economic elites who are making money. So let's, let's be clear. There are certain people who make money off the Olympics, and those people tend to be a privileged sliver of the global 1%. It's not the everyday people of the Olympic City. The 2014 Sochi Winter Olympics were a disaster from the beginning, with expensive roads constructed and accommodations half-finished. It's no surprise what's happened to the town's Olympic venues. Just six months later, the area is a ghost town. The Beijing 2008 Summer Olympics put on an amazing spectacle, but now its parks are empty. This kayaking venue is now bone dry. It's like Montgomery Burns times 14 or something like that. <laughs> I'll keep it short and sweet. Family, religion, friendship. These are the three demons you must slay if you wish to succeed in business. In Rio de Janeiro, we see celebration capitalism in full throttle technicolor. Another great example of this is the golf course. So... Golf is making a return to the Olympics after a 112-year hiatus. And so what do they need? They need a golf course. Well, Rio already has two golf courses, as they trumpeted, by the way, in their Olympic bid back in 2009. Well, it turns out neither course is quite up to snuff for the golf fans. They could have converted one of the courses, but they say it would have cost just as much as building a new one. So they're building this new course. Well, they, where do they decide to site this new course? They site it over the edge of Matapendi Nature Reserve. So they make a huge slice into a nature reserve, for starters, okay? Second... The golf course is funded by a well-connected developer named Pascual Moro. As long as he puts up the money, about 20 to $30 million, to build the golf course and a series of 140 attached luxury condos, after the games are over, the government grants him the right to sell the condos at a steep profit. 
on what was, remember, land that was supposed to be a nature preserve. He's going to make millions and millions of dollars off this, okay? There's there's no doubt about it. Um, state of exception that you're talking about, the mayor of Rio, Eduardo Pais, he went in in the middle of the night and he, in right before Christmas 2012, and he had the local laws changed so that his buddy Pascual Moro could build taller condos, thereby build more condos and thereby sell more condos and make more money. So this is kind of how it's working in Rio and it's pretty in your face egregious. This kind of wheeler-dealer situation is why there have been major protests against the Olympics since forever. Way back in the 1920s and 1930s, labor organizers staged a socialist alternative to the Olympic Games. They called it the Workers' Olympiads. Activists at the time saw popular sport as an important tool to demonstrate solidarity, with workers of every country standing shoulder to shoulder together against fascism. The Olympics presents itself as apolitical, an international coming together of kumbaya with no political differences. But that's totally false. It's always political. It has served over the years as a global platform for athletes to make a point, like runners John Carlos and Tommy Smith doing their iconic black power salute from the awards podium of the 1968 Olympics in Mexico City. And in 1964, the Olympics banned South Africa from participating in the Games as a recognition of the inhumanity of apartheid. The ban remained in place until 1988. In more recent years, we've seen major protests against the Olympics. For example, right at the outset of the Vancouver Olympics, people were protesting the game's arrival. And leading up to the games in Beijing, there were protests around the world, including Tibetans who disrupted the Olympic torch relay in London. The torch's progress was punctuated with confrontation. Along the routes, there were people who'd come to support China and confronted with their Tibetan counterparts, there were ugly scenes. In Rio, some of the country's poorest people have been pushing back. But yeah, I mean, we've had tons of uh, really smart, creative activists fight back against the Olympics. We have this group in Rio called Comité Popular da Copa do Mundo e das Olimpíadas, which is popular committee for the World Cup and the Olympics. They got their start around the 2014 World Cup in Brazil. And these are smart, seasoned activists who've been planning for this for a long time. I had the good fortune of sitting in on a number of their meetings when I was living in Rio, their weekly meetings I go to. And uh, they're just really impressive. They're smart. And they've been standing in solidarity with a lot of the people who've been affected by the Olympics. For example, there's a community just next to the Olympic Stadium they're building in Baja da Tijuca called Vila Todromo. And this is a favela that's been there since the 1960s. And people have been pushed out because of the Olympic Games. Residents here have been campaigning to stay for 20 years since local authorities first started complaining about what they called ecological and aesthetic problems. Now they say the land is on the Olympic site and in the path of a road that needs to be built here by 2016. Residents' associations say it's a pretext to force them out. People from the Comité Popular have been standing in solidarity, holding events with the people from Vila Autódromo. So that's just one group that's active in Brazil. In London, I was there also for the Olympics, and they took more of a sort of 
tell the truth but tell it slant, as Emily Dickinson might say, approach, where they brought humor to the game. There's this amazing group there that I, I followed and worked with called Space Hijackers, and they're just terrific. They're really creative. One of the things about the Olympics is there's this sort of incredibly intense brand micromanagement where corporate sponsors get pole position and they dominate the field. So McDonald's, you know, that health food that all athletes should be eating. McDonald's is a big corporate sponsor. And so as a result, in Olympic venues, only McDonald's French fries are allowed. McDonald's Olympic twist fries. Inspiration with a twist. Ah, this month only. Now in England, huh. chips are a big thing, right? You have your fish and chips. So you couldn't bring any chips. None of those British chips could enter. So space hijackers set up this catapult outside of Olympic venues where they're going to catapult chips into and over the fence into the Olympic areas, right? So this incredible creativity as a way of challenging some of these weird rules and laws that are put in place to host the Olympics. So given that the Olympics is often used to screw over regular citizens in a lot of different ways, is it a little bit weird that the nation still bands together to cheer it on? We've seen how the Olympics is used to justify rewriting laws to pour public money, our money, into big developments that make lots of profit for the Mr. Burns of the world. But people still get so excited about the Olympics. I get excited about the Olympics. Have you seen the videos of Simone Biles' gymnastics routine? She looks amazing! Amid all the spectacle and pomp and circumstance and consumerism of the Olympics, the athletes are the real deal. There's nothing wrong with being excited about humans who push themselves to do incredible things. People sometimes say that sports is like the new opiate of the masses. Kind of like religion was back in the day of Karl Marx. And so I don't buy that. I don't think that it's quite that simple that sport is the new opiate of the masses. And I actually went back and, and reread my Karl Marx from that time period. And when you look at what he has to say even about religion, he says that religion is the heart in a heartless world. So he's really not saying that religion is this total evil. He's saying it's the heart in a heartless world. And maybe in a way, sports can be that in our contemporary era as well. And I do believe that sport can really open up conversations you can have with people across the political spectrum. That's definitely been my experience. Now, before I started writing about the Olympics some, you know, seven years ago or so, I spent a decade of my life researching and writing about how the state and media squelch political dissent. And let me tell you, when I showed up at Thanksgiving and I want to talk politics, <laughs> I want to talk about, hey, did you hear about the American Indian Movement uncle, uh, who my right-wing uncle who didn't want to talk about the American Indian Movement, how they were being squelched. It went nowhere. You're like, hey, buddy, let's talk about drones. Also, pass the gravy. <laughs> exactly. Uh, it was very unsuccessful, my forays into politics with people with whom I differed politically, like my uncle, for example. Um, but with sports, it's totally different because it's an entry point for conversation and you can get to really interesting political spaces and you can get to really interesting political spaces of agreement with people. After all, there are a lot of people who are fiscal conservatives who find the spending on the Olympics absolutely abhorrent. And there are conservatives and liberals and progressives and everything between and outside of that 
who ha- will share the same favorite athlete. So I don't see why we need to forfeit the ground of sports and say, oh, it, we, we shouldn't be talking about that as people interested in politics or as intellectuals or as poets. No, I think all those people can appreciate sports and use it as a way of talking to people we might not otherwise get the chance to talk to. Jules Boykoff's book is called Power Games, A Political History of the Olympics. Check it out. 